trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hope you're having a marvelous uh, last couple of days of February. (laughs) We get an extra day this year. I know I'm probably making a bigger deal out of it than I need to, but anyway, thanks for joining me here. This is The Brian Hyde Show brought to you by LifesavingFood.com as well as TMCPNation.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, and QuiltAndSew.com. By the way, Ironsight Brewing Company—that's uh, that's a subscription coffee service. So if you you know if you like a cup of Joe to get you going in the morning, this is one you ought to take a look at. Go to IronsightBC.com; they'll take it from there. So, I have to tell you right up front, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on a couple of mm, less than pleasant topics, but they're things that we probably better understand if we want to continue to, to maintain our freedom and not to not trade away essential liberties for the promise of safety. Notice not the, not the actual delivery of said safety, but just the promise of it. And uh, there's a lot to cover, but let's start, first of all, with the inversion of morality and foundational principles in American society. I know most of us like to think, well, of course I pay attention to what's going on around us. But seriously, if you could transport someone from even 10 years ago to today, what kind of shock would they be experiencing? You know, the closest thing I can think of that that approximates the the kind of uh, that sense of, wow, what the heck happened and, and, and keep in mind, this is this is nearly 40 years ago. I, I served a mission for my church, which means for, for two years, media, radio, television, all that was, was off limits. My focus was supposed to be to go out there and help people find Jesus. So when I came back home from my mission, keep in mind, this was like 1986 through 1988. I turned on the television, specifically MTV, and I was shocked. I was like, Wow. They are getting away with a lot. Now, when I say getting away with a lot, I mean, oh, I'll give you an example. George Michael had released the song Father Figure. And I, that song, by the way, <laughs> now now that I'm a dad, I listen to the lyrics of that. And I'm just like, holy cow, that is a creepy song. That is just bizarre. But the video had a lot of nudity. Now, and that doesn't mean gratuitous, full frontal stuff. Just, But I remember distinctly coming home flipping on the TV and sitting down to watch and going, wow, they're getting away with a whole bunch more than than they used to. Now, think of how that has has come incrementally over and over, you know, in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And it's, it's pretty shocking. But that's just one aspect, right? The entertainment aspect. What about all the other foundational principles in, in American society, the norms? I mean, did, did you ever think we would see a day? Who could have accurately predicted that we would be having knockdown, drag out, like literally violent battles over whether or not uh, individuals born as men can safely pretend to be women and use the women's facilities and be naked in the women's restroom or, or locker rooms or whatever. But that's where we are today. And it's a, it's a strange place to be. 
So I wanted to share with you some insights from Michael Herman, because he tackles the question, where did it all start? What are the origins of our new cultural norms? And, and this covers a lot of territory, but here's his take. He says, there's a lot more going on in the U.S. than just a liberal transformation of societal norms. Now, it's unfortunate that mainstream media has been completely co-opted by the deep state, as we need some intrepid reporter to find some things out for us. For example, where exactly did CRT start? And how did it gain so much momentum within our public school system? Now, he's talking about critical race theory. How and where did DEI start? Again, we're hearing a ton about this today. I've heard it was caused by a hedge fund manager to asset to investment opportunity to assess rather investment opportunities based on social justice issues. But is that the real root start of DEI or did the concept begin in academia? Now, I'm wondering if Michael might be confusing this with the ESG because that's really that's kind of the corporate. Uh, that's where a lot of corporate wokeness starts. But he's not wrong in the sense that all of a sudden we see that. Uh, there, there are a lot of corporations embracing wokeness, and that's definitely a concept that began in academia. So his point is simply this. We have somehow transitioned from a nation that teaches to ignore the color of skin and ins- instead to seek out the content of character into a nation that only sees color. And that has created programs in both academia and commerce to promote based solely on color, absent any measure of character or ability. In just 20 short years, we abandoned traditional metrics of merit in favor of promotion solely by race. By the way, just for fun, take a look or, or, or see if you can search up how many schools are having separate graduations or separate proms based on skin color. Now, by, by the way, if they tried to do this for whites, it would be called, wow, that's just white supremacy. But... Uh, any other ethnicity? Oh, yeah, it's, you know, we celebrate. It's a, a great way to celebrate here. Anyhow, let's, uh, let's put, pick another issue here. The number of ways we've all been shown that uh, grade schools across America are shaming white children for their white privilege are too numerous to mention. And the number of ways transgender and gay issues are being promoted in grade school have been uncovered and are too numerous to mention. In fact, if you really want to shock, just scroll through Libs of TikTok's Twitter account and you will see how pervasive the message from teachers to students is supporting all things transgender and gay. They've got a captive audience. If you want to be an activist, that's a good place to do it. Except for the fact that, you know, again, you're subverting, you know, long held values that haven't just guided our society, but actually have guided humanity over the course of thousands and thousands of years. Billions of minds have worked on this, but hey, apparently everything that came before us was wrong, so we have to reject all of it. Michael Herman says it's far surpassed surpassed acceptance. We are to the promotion phase. Acceptance is no longer the metric. You have to celebrate all things gay and transgender. But the more important thing is, how did we get here? How did it become acceptable nationwide to allow transgender women to participate in girls' sports? And the movement of transgender, again in quotes, women into these sports was complete nationwide overnight. All of these new ideas and programs have been adopted absent any national discussion. They've been completely absorbed by federal and state governments, academia, and corporate America. That's pretty stunning, isn't it? There was no discussion on the merits or proven factual supports for any of this new doctrine. It was swallowed whole, as fact, implemented swiftly, and became the new norm overnight. CRT, DEI, transgender acceptance in a female sport, teaching adult sexual themes on alternative lifestyles as soon as first grade 
All of these ideas are now mainstream in academia and corporate America. And if you protest any or all of them, well, you will be labeled racist, transphobic, homophobic, etc. Michael Herman says any and all arguments for a return to a merit-based society are met with cancellation. You could lose your job, be stripped of your position, face disciplinary action, even lose the ability to raise your child should the school decide to bring in child protective services against you. So to fight this new doctrine was to find yourself pilloried, canceled from this new society, and ostracized. Even a strong repentance might not allow your return. You simply were not allowed to question how we got to critical race theory, how we got critical race theory in the, in the curriculum of every school in America, or how DEI became the new metric for all advancement in corporate America, or how transgenderism <clears throat> has broken out from a rather small percentage of our population and into a daily mainstream topic. But he says, I ask you, dear reader and community members who read regularly, what of the origins of these programs? Now, he says, I have a suspicion that all those ethnic and gender studies programs implemented into our institutes of higher learning way back in the 1980s have had the source, their source materials and curriculum trend toward the basics of CRT and DEI. The very source of any idea of white supremacy has to have begun in some black studies program which claims that blacks simply cannot advance in a society created by whites. This whole gender is a construct has to have come from women's studies programs, the creation of which parallel black studies programs at universities across America. He says, I believe any examination where all these of where all of these programs originate will somehow point to academia and it's, he says it will somehow uh, show that black studies and women's studies are the actual major majors and fields of endeavor from where we get these ideas. He says, I believe the, at some point the idea of black Americans having the opportunity to study their history, what it has meant to be black in America, and to review uh, W.E.B., uh, Du Bois, uh, Frederick Douglass, James Baldwin, and so many others, somehow morphed into an entire curriculum which basically summarizes it as white man bad. Same thing seems to have happened with women's studies. Instead of some review of the suffragette movement, women's voting rights, the rise of feminism in the 60s, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, Helen Gurley Brown, and others, it instead became a curriculum of men are the scourge and bane of our existence. These ideas had to come from somewhere. We're going to come back to Michael Herman's commentary in just a few moments. There is a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I was sharing with you a commentary from Michael Herman. This is from his Substack. And if you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, these are show notes for February 28th, 2024. You'll find a link to this article. I want to jump back in here to where Michael points out that all the metrics that we once used to determine right and wrong, good and bad, every single one of them have been turned on their head. In fact, he says, I read a comment from a black activist recently who said that they refused to accept any white narrative on the Jussie Smollett case, claiming instead that his views and statements must be understood from the narrative of being a black victim in a racist society. And therefore, she said, his truth must stand as the truth. All facts of the case be damned. 
Now, that's spooky from the standpoint, as, as Michael points out here, we cannot coexist in an America where our understanding of truth has opposite meaning. We cannot coexist in an America where there's your truth, your truth rather, our truth, and the real truth. His point is, stealing is still wrong, even if the amount is under $900. You cannot merely raise the financial bar for morality. And a society that fails to live by principled standards is destined to fail. He says, we need a real review of how we got to this point in America where the driving forces were behind DEI, behind CRT, behind my truth is requiring any validity at all. And then he says, we need to re-engineer those programs and bend them back toward meritocracy, morals, and foundational principles. We will not and cannot stand as a united people under the current metrics. They are designed to fail, and when they fail, so will the country. I know, it's kind of a pessimistic take, but it's also, I think, pretty realistic. Now, here's what I take from this, okay? This is not about, well, let's go out there and let's all be culture warriors. I think that we should resist. I think that we should push back and that we should definitely defend those things that are worth defending. But instead of going out and having protests or we're going to take over this school board or we're going to write a new curriculum and that kind of thing, with most reforms, it has to start with ourselves. And in this case, the single most important thing that you and I can do is learn to become truth seekers. I don't mean my truth, her truth, our truth. How about the truth? That's the only way that we're, we're going to do this. Right now, so many people are, are disconnected from reality. And so if, if you want to make a difference, don't look for some big one fell swoop. We changed society in just one, you know, quick move because it doesn't happen that way. The way a society changes is when each individual chooses to become one improved unit. If I could borrow a phrase from uh, Albert J. Nock, that's what he counseled. You know, get your, he was like the uh, Jordan Peterson of the 1930s. Get yourself together. Get yourself squared away. Make sure you are firmly rooted in truth. And by the way, that sounds pretty easy, but sometimes it's a little bit scary because truth will lead you places that you uh, you maybe don't want to go. Nonetheless, if you can stay rooted in reality, your influence will have impact on the people around you. That doesn't mean everybody is going to immediately drop what they're doing and you know get their heads right. And, and embrace reality as well. But again, by bringing that one improved unit to society, someone who not only understands, but lives up to the principles and lives up to the truth that they have, have attained, you're setting an example, particularly for those younger members of, uh, of those within your circle of influence, and it will have impact. The trouble is we're, we're kind of trained to look at politicians. Well, they'll help us. They'll make sure that we can can get this all taken care of. They'll show us the way. No, they won't. And and I guess the, the danger here is uh, we're, we're way too willing to outsource that or call upon if we could just get the right person in office. You know, this is going to make things happen. It has to start with us. So that's probably the scariest thing I'm going to tell you today. You want to make a difference? Great. Start with yourself. Make the difference there, and I promise you, like the ripples from a pebble thrown into a pond, your influence will radiate outward to the people around you. Not everybody's going to see it, not everybody's going to appreciate it, and not everybody is going to be changed by it, but some people will. 
In fact, if you think carefully about your own life, you probably recognize that there were people whose influence radiated outward to you and helped you find the strength to stand firm on those things that you hold most dear. So there's something to think about. I'm going to move on to another topic here. Let's talk about the fact that democracy naturally devolves into tyranny. This is something that has been understood for millennia. In fact, I'm trying to remember if it was, let's see, there was Plato and uh, I got to think about who was, who was Plato's uh, mentor. Sorry, I'm drawing a blank here. Plato mentored, er, mentored Aristotle. It was Socrates. Okay. Um, now I'm trying to remember which one of those talked about the digression. Maybe, I think it was Plato who talked about a digression, about how monarchies will devolve, how democracy will devolve. But the bottom line is, democracy has a tendency to turn into tyranny at some point. Jeff Thomas, writing for International Man, says, The decline from democracy to tyranny is both a natural and also an inevitable one. Now, that's not a pleasant thought to have to consider, but he says it's a fact, nonetheless. In every case, a democracy will deteriorate as a result of the electorate accepting the loss of freedom in trade for largesse from their government. Now, the process may be fascism or socialism, communism, or any other basket of isms, but tyranny is the inevitable endgame of democracy. Like the destruction of a sandcastle by the incoming tide, it takes time to transpire, but in time... The democracy, like the sandcastle, will be washed away in its entirety. Now he asks, why should this be so? And this is actually something that he'd written some time ago. He said the concept of government is that the people grant to a small group of individuals the ability to establish and maintain controls over them. The inherent flaw in such a concept is that any government will invariably and continually expand upon its controls, resulting in the ever-diminishing freedom of those who granted them the power. That does sound about right. Now, unfortunately, says Jeff Thomas, there will always be those who wish to rule. And there will always be a majority of voters who are complacent enough and naive enough to allow their freedoms to be slowly removed. Now, the adverb slowly is the key by which the removal of freedoms is achieved. That old adage about boiling a frog is that the frog will jump out of the pot if it's filled with hot water. But if the water's lukewarm and the temperature is slowly raised... He'll grow accustomed to the temperature change and inadvertently allow himself to be boiled. Jeff Thomas says, let's have a look at Thomas Jefferson's assessment of this technique. Jefferson said, quote, even under the best forms of government, those entrusted with power have in time and by slow operations perverted it into tyranny. Now, Mr. Jefferson was a true visionary. He knew, even as he was penning the Declaration of Independence and portions of the Constitution, that his proclamations, even if they were accepted by his fellow founding fathers, would not last. He continually recommended, and re rather, he recommended repeated revolutions to counter the inevitable tendency by political leaders to continually vie for the removal of the freedoms from their constituents. Have you ever heard the way the phrase "watering the tree of liberty"? Okay, that's, that's what we're talking about. Now, at the same time that Mr. Jefferson made those comments, Alexander Teitler, a Scottish economist and historian, commented on the new American experiment in democracy. And he's credited as saying, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that the voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. 
From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. Now, something you need to keep in mind here, too, is when a government reaches the stage where it's, it's losing its grip, losing its, uh, its hold on power, you will see a police state begin to emerge. It'll ramp it up. And we're seeing this all around the world. Displays of armed forces in the streets, including armored vehicles, whenever there's disruption. I guess if there's a takeaway here, it's that although uh, some may object, even violently, the majority of people will trade their freedom for the promise of safety. Hey, our goal is that you and I are not the people who are doing that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I feel like I'm skating toward the thin ice here, but this is a topic that needs to be addressed, and that is, how is it that highway robbery continues to be the law, the law of the land? Now, you may have heard me talk about uh, civil asset forfeiture before, but I want you to take a look at uh, an article I'm including in today's show notes from Jim Bovard. This was published on lourockwell.com earlier today. And if it doesn't make you mad, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe, maybe check your pulse because I don't think any thinking individual could, could hear about these stories and not feel an acute sense of injustice when police seize property or cash, which is more likely the property, from people who have not even been accused of a crime, much less been found guilty of committing one. Jim Bovard says seizure fever is toxifying law enforcement across the nation. For more than 30 years, federal, state, and local government agencies have plundered citizens on practically any harebrained accusation or pretext. You could be at risk of being pilfered by officialdom any time you sit behind a steering wheel. He says between 2001 and 2014, lawmen seized more than $2.5 billion in cash from 60,000 travelers on the nation's highways, with no criminal charges in most cases. That's according to the Washington Post. Federal, state, and local law enforcement have institutionalized shakedowns on the nation's highways to the point that forfeiture corridors are the new speed traps, as Mother Jones observed. Police can almost always find an excuse to pull someone over. Gerald Ehrenberg, executive director of the National Association of the Chiefs of Police, told Jim back in a 1996 interview, We have so damn many laws, you can't drive down the streets without breaking the law. The Washington Post reported that police set up rolling checkpoints on busy highways and pulled motorists over for minor violations like following too closely or improper signaling and looked for supposed indicators of criminal activity, which can include things like trash on the floor of a vehicle or abundant energy drinks. There's something to think about next time you go for a long cross-country drive. Don't have your energy drink too, uh, too visible. Well, that's an indicator of criminal activity. Anyway, here are some examples. In... Uh, Tanaha, Texas, I know I'm saying it wrong, authorities confiscated $3 million from motorists passing through East Texas. The names of the court filings captured the, the rapacity of those police officials with cases like the state of Texas versus one gold crucifix. The police had confiscated a simple gold cross that a woman wore around her neck after pulling her over for a minor traffic violation. 
No contraband was reported. No criminal charges were filed. And get this, no traffic ticket was issued. The New Yorker noted. They just took it. Sorry, ma'am, you're going to have to forfeit that. If drivers refuse to part with their money, well, then officers are threatened to arrest them on false money laundering charges and other serious felonies. An American Civil Liberties Union lawsuit uh, charged, charged that. Now, Tanaha police stopped a 27-year-old black man who worked as a chicken slicer at an Arkansas Tyson plant and fleeced him of $3,900 after accusing him of driving too close to the white line. There's that uh, we-can-stop-you-for-any-reason mentality. After the police warned Jennifer Boatwright that they would take custody of her children if she refused to surrender the thousands of dollars she carried to buy a used car, she burst into tears and thought, where are we? Is this some kind of foreign country where they're selling people's kids off? The American Civil Liberties Union lawsuit and the Texas legislature compelled the town to, cre- to cease the abusive seizures in 2012. However, most victims never got their property back. Does that sound like justice to you? Because it only seems to serve uh, the interest of the state here, not the people. Here's another example. In 2016, Muskogee County, Oklahoma sheriff's deputies hit the sirens and pulled over a 40-year-old Burmese refugee driving down Highway 69 for a broken taillight. Eh Wa, a naturalized U.S. citizen living in Dallas, was the manager for a Christian rock band that had been on tour raising more than $50,000 for a Thai orphanage and a Christian college in Burma. Well, police found the money and a drug dog alerted so the money was seized even though Wah had papers documenting his mission and the source of the income. Okay, so the drug dog alerted, wink, wink, and in this case, no drugs were found on, in, in Wah's vehicle. But a Muskogee deputy later insisted, the fact that in this particular case we didn't find drugs doesn't mean it was a false hit by the dog. Okay, Wah was interrogated and threatened for six hours. He was told, you are going to jail tonight. Now, that was a terrifying experience for someone whose English was shaky and who fled a nation where the police were tyrannical. The sheriff's department kept the money but let Waugh travel on. Five weeks after he left Oklahoma, Waugh was charged with acquiring proceeds from a drug activity, a felony. Yes, they charged him with a felony. The primary evidence was the dog's alert. Now, this, uh, this Oklahoma perfidy was torpedoed by Dan Albin, an Institute for Justice attorney who thwarted many outrageous cash seizures. Albin took Waugh's case and told the Muskogee Phoenix that the timing of the charge suggests they were trying to strong-arm Eh Waugh so that he would give up the money in the civil forfeiture case in exchange for a plea deal in the criminal case. Well, on the same day the Washington Post published an article on the case, Muskogee County dropped the charge and promised to send a full refund. Now, I'm going to pause for just a moment and ask you, why did it happen in the first place? Okay, Jim Bovard says, perverse incentives propel plunder. Police in many states use confiscated property to pay their own salaries, bonuses, and vacations. A Missouri police chief said that forfeiture money was like pennies from heaven that get you a toy. Federal agencies partner with local and state law enforcement to enable them to evade state laws limiting seizures of private property. Under a program euphemistically called equitable sharing, which sounds better than shared plunder, local and state law enforcement agencies retain most of the property they seize when they team up with the feds. So they grab your cash. Well, okay, technically we can't hang on to it. But hey, Mr. DEA agent, you can take it. And so they do. Oh, and they do get a generous kickback. 
In South Carolina, police keep 95% of the assets they commandeer. Drivers' cash is routinely seized after they're stopped for, pique, stopped for picayune offenses. As the Greenville News reported, Raimondo Moore was cited for having an open container of alcohol in Richland County in 2015. He lost $604. Plexton Denard Hunter was pulled over for a seatbelt violation in 2015 in Richland County. They seized $541 from him. Tesla Carter, another seatbelt violation, this time in Anderson in 2015. She lost $1,361. You see the pattern here? Most of these police seizures... of cash involved less than $1,000. That's a trivial amount for the serious drug traffickers out there. Black men represent 13% of the state's population, yet 65% of all citizens targeted for civil forfeiture in the state are black males, according to a 2019 investigation by South Carolinian newspapers. In Phelps County, Missouri, police seized millions of dollars in cash, and property from people who've traveled on Interstate 44. Two-thirds of Phelps County forfeiture victims have Hispanic names. Phelps County deputies justify seizures simply by asserting that the owners are shady characters with evidence like driving a rental vehicle, bloodshot eyes, nervousness, or even air fresheners hanging from the rearview mirror. Drivers were commonly stopped for failing to signal before changing lanes, another telltale sign of drug trafficking. Phelps County police almost never file state criminal charges against those whose cash they seize, nor does it seize rather, nor does it make big drug seizures during those stops targeting cash. That's according to a 2020 investigation by St. Louis Public Radio. Now in 2021, the feds partnered with local police to commence robbing armored cars. Though 36 states have legalized marijuana for recreational or medical use, federal law continues to prohibit engaging in cannabis transactions. Local police in California and Kansas began stopping and searching armored cars owned by Imperial Logistics, which transported cash from licensed marijuana dispensaries. More than a million dollars was taken and split between local and federal lawmen. The Federal Bureau of Investigation justified the seizures because the proceeds, they say, were derived from narcotics crime or money laundering, even though state law in California explicitly permits the transport of money from legal cannabis operations. You get the picture that they're acting like robbers, just dressed better and uh, much more organized. Jim Bovard says forfeiture is a rigged game in which low-income Americans suffer the worst. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in 2017, These forfeiture operations frequently target the poor and other groups least able to defend their interests in forfeiture proceedings. Similarly, Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett declared in a 2014 dissent, civil forfeiture now disproportionately ensnares those least capable of protecting themselves. Poor Texans who usually capitulate without a fight because mounting a defense is too costly. Due process in forfeiture cases often depends solely on the media coverage and abuse receives. Sporadic government defeats are no consolation to forfeiture victims who can't afford a lawyer to fight for their rights. Now, James Bovard says, look, almost 250 years ago, Arthur Lee of Virginia aptly proclaimed the right of property is the guardian of every other right. And to deprive the people of this is to deprive them of their liberty. But increasingly, private property, says Jim Bovard, is something that officialdom merely tolerates until they concoct some pretext to seize it. If the police can detain and plunder Americans as they please, whenever people drive down the road, all the other rights and liberties in the Constitution are of scant consolation. If politicians in the Supreme Court don't care enough to end the forfeiture travesty, all of their other claims of devotion to freedom 
are not worth a tinker's damn. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, now don't say I didn't warn you in the very opening segment that uh, I was going to be covering some heavy and, yes, even unpleasant topics today. I'm a man of my word. I have delivered on this. I got another great article that I wanted to share. Actually, two great articles that I'd like to share here in this uh, final segment of today's show. One of these is by Charles Kerblich, who uh, writes for the Brownstone Institute. This one is called Ruled by the Capricious Whims of Politicians. And you don't have to be a Trump fan, by the way, to, to recognize how justice is being turned on its head for political purposes. Charles Kerblich says they got him two failed impeachments in a very messy criminal case that's probably falling apart in Georgia. Couldn't do it, but a civil case in New York did. The verdict, a $355 million fine and a ban on conducting business in New York for three years. A ban on conducting business. Wow. Maybe they'll mandate the renters in, in his buildings don't need to pay rent. That's no longer unprecedented. Now, we're talking about Trump's trial, and this trial was a non-jury trial, not that it would have mattered, decided by a single judge who appears to have personally relished the process. He forced the defendant to sit for a deposition, held him in contempt, fined him several times, and has, of course, ruled in favor of the already predetermined outcome. In his ruling, he even pontificated of the, the nature of the sin, that's in air quotes, stating that it was a venial sin and not a mortal one. Venial meaning it's a forgivable sin. One just needs the proper behavior to be forgiven. And because the ruling can be used as precedent for further political persecutions, the governor of New York felt compelled to tell the press, I think that this is really an extraordinary, unusual circumstance that the law-abiding and rule-following New Yorkers, who are business people, have nothing to worry about because they are very different than Donald Trump and his behavior. Yeah, that should send a chill up your spine. And, and Charles Kerblich says, look, there are implications behind those words. In Canada, there were hundreds of bank accounts frozen simply for having donated to the Freedom Convoy, a stream of semi-trucks that filled the streets of Ottawa to protest the absurd vaccine and health mandates. Now, it, of course, was perfectly legal to donate to the free Freedom Convoy protesters in the same way that it's completely legal to donate to Black Lives Matter or Planned Parenthood. Some groups, no matter how despicable their behavior, are approved and protected by the state. Other groups, no matter how clean-cut their behavior, are not. By the way, that word behavior is italicized in both cases here, right? What, what did Governor Hochul say? Oh, yes, you're very different from Donald Trump and his behavior. The point is, these, uh, the unapproved groups tend to organize spontaneously, and spontaneity is a pillar of freedom, and the state does not do freedom well. So what's the real message behind the ruling in Governor Hochul's words? Stay in line, keep your head down. If we can do it to an ex-president of the United States with whom we've all done business, we can do it to any of you, especially those of you that don't have the enormous resources and political support that an ex-president does. Lockdowns and COVID mania appear to have destroyed any remaining respect that much of the country had for the rule of law. Lockdowns are a marked departure from the idea that government exists to protect its citizens' rights, private property, and to mediate disputes without violence. Rather, the lockdown model of governance is the idea that government can mandate behavior and that if you are to deviate from the approved behavior, 
well, then you forfeit your rights. The pandemic was flooded with the concept that your rights were forfeited for not behaving. The White House demanded that you had to be vaccinated to work. The Washington Post questioned if the vaccinated deserved ICU beds. If you didn't behave, you even forfeited your right to receive an organ donation. And they quote from a news article here, a spokesman for the hospital said, a spokesman rather said the hospital requires the COVID-19 vaccine and lifestyle behaviors for transplant candidates. The organs are scarce. We are not going to distribute them to someone who has a poor chance of living when others who are vaccinated have a better chance post-surgery of surviving. Now, let's compare that to the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, Charles Kerblich says, look, those two quotes seem antonymic, coming from two entirely different mindsets, but he says, maybe I'm wrong. The pandemic was simply a highly unusual, extraordinary circumstance. If we follow the rules, we have nothing to worry about. Surely, if I'm incorrect, I can find some reassurance the state is still acting in a benevolent fashion, insistent on protecting my rights and allowing me to pursue my own happiness. Well, luckily, we have an upcoming election. It's the most important election in our lifetimes. We have, the one, we have one candidate who ordered the lockdowns. He started the process of government punishing exceptionally normal behaviors, Now that candidate is being persecuted for his behaviors. He's been more than happy denigrating half the country on more than one occasion. He promises to shift the persecution to his opponents. He promised this in his first term. The other candidate is fully supportive of the lockdown and mandate approach to governance. He fully supports the persecution of his opponents and has been more than happy denigrating half the country on more than one occasion. Both candidates imposed or continued rent moratoriums and debt forgiveness. Both clamored for more of the money printing that resulted in the large inflationary effects we've seen over the past several years. Unbelievably, they both claimed they created an incredible amount of jobs, which were simply jobs returning after the lockdowns ended. From this perspective alone, lockdown is a powerful narrative tool of positive governance. Everything fake is real and nothing real is fake. But as Governor Hochul said, don't worry, Charles Kerblich says, I was pacified with the knowledge that responsible people are in charge, the irresponsible are being justifiably punished, and as long as I behave, I have nothing to worry about. Behavior is important, and actions always belie words. By the way, I hope you're catching the sarcasm in what he's saying here. Well, as long as I behave, I have nothing to worry about. That's what the people in power want us to think. That's, uh, that's, in fact, that's the whole message. Well, if you'll just do what we tell you, then we have no need to punish you. I guess that's functionally no different than any other tyrant throughout history, but what a great article. I, by the way, I really do appreciate uh, Charles Kerblich's uh, articles, which I have found on the Brownstone Institute, which, again, I'm going to recommend. If you're not checking this site out on a daily basis, you are missing some really thought-provoking commentaries on on a wide variety of topics, but especially on anything pertaining to the COVID lockdowns, the the whole COVID response. That's a site that has done a lot to help hold people accountable. One final article, this is the article of the day. We had this question, will AI be a tool of advancement or will it be a tool of destruction to higher education? 
This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Rob Jenkins has a really interesting take on how AI might affect our educational institutions in the years to come. And that's, here's what he's wondering. Will artificial intelligence become the greatest boon to higher education since online learning? By the way, that assumes online learning was a boon, which he says is a topic for another day. Or will it mean the utter destruction of academia as we know it? Rob Jenkins says, these are the two views I see expressed most often these days, with various individuals I respect taking opposite sides. Now, he says, as someone who's naturally skeptical of this kind of over-the-top rhetoric, I think the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Despite the forceful yet mixed messages surrounding AI and its applications to higher ed, I have so far in my work been very affected by by it rather very little. But he says, although I could be wrong, I don't expect to be affected much by it in the future. So, should I change the way I do everything to accommodate this latest, latest thing? Should I run for the hills and pray for the mountains to fall on me? Perhaps I I should do neither, confident that the more attention a new toy receives, the less it probably deserves. And he reminds us of some other times when we've, uh, you know, had our attention captured by, oh, I don't know, things like uh, Y2K, the Segway scooter, all those kinds of things. So I don't work a lot with AI right now, but, but I do appreciate that it has opened up some very interesting possibilities. It's also opened up some really weird ways to spin the truth, as we saw with the Google Gemini AI that was uh, released here just a few days back, that, uh, you know, if you asked it to show me an image of, or uh, create for me an image of founding fathers, isn't it, there are no white people anywhere. In fact, funny thing about it, if you wanted to trick the AI into showing you white people, you would say, show me an image of people eating fried chicken. And it would show you white people. <laughs> I had to laugh at that because it's like, all right, then. Uh, I guess AI, take, it brings as much wokeness to the table as what was programmed into it. And this article from Rob Jenkins is really, really great. Now, he actually teaches, and so he's, he's concerned about, you know, students using AI to cheat on their tests and, and uh, especially their writing assignments. And I guess that's a possibility. It's What's crazy to me is you can feed things that you have written into AI, and it will learn your voice. It will learn to write and sound like you. I mean, it could be a big time saver, and I think that uh, used responsibly, that's awesome. I can also see people using it for uh, some not-so-responsible purposes. Isn't this the truth with everything, right? The Internet? Oh, look at all the information available to us. What's that? There's boobs? Oh, well... You get the point. Check out uh, today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for February 28th. This is The Brian Hyde Show.